With that, let us now turn to our passage for this morning. Pastor Bill will be preaching from Isaiah chapter 2, and we're continuing in our Advent series, focusing on Jesus as the King. This is God's word. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is God's word. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we are continuing our teaching series this morning for Advent in the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet. He lived roughly 700 years before Jesus was born, and Isaiah often spoke about the judgment of God. He talked about the corruption of Israel and about God's coming judgment on them, but also on the, God's coming judgment on the equally corrupt nations all around them. Isaiah spoke about judgment, but he also spoke about a king who would not despise us for our corruption who would not turn his back on us, but who would enter into the middle of it in order to do something about it. A king who would save his people from the evil that was inside of them and who would fix all the brokenness of the world around them so that once again this whole world would be in harmony with God and with itself. We got a little glimpse of that last week, of that restoration where nature is no longer at war with itself. It's no longer fighting against humanity. We saw humanity retaking its place to shepherd and care for this earth in ways that actually benefit this world. And we got hints that as humans are restored to God, as they come to God, they also are restored to each other. They're coming closer to each other. They're no longer at war with God or with each other. And that's what we want to focus on today the absence of war, and the presence of peace. That's where today's passage goes in verse 4. A time when the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A time when nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the future of humanity. It's a time where, as one Old Testament scholar puts it, the means of war, swords and spears, The practice of war, taking up swords against each other, and the mentality of war, learning war. The means of war, the practice of war, and the mentality of war will alike disappear. That's the future of humanity. A time of no more war, of absolute unending peace. A time that is not yet here, but a time that is coming. A time where protecting ourselves from each other is just not necessary. A time when technology will be focused solely on nourishing the human race rather than destroying or protecting parts of the human race. A time that is not fully here yet, and yet a time that has implications for how you and I live. So to understand what that future means for us now, we're going to need to learn three things from this passage about peace. First, we need to understand why there isn't peace. 
Why is war our normal experience of life on this planet? Why isn't there peace? Second, what will bring peace? What is great enough to bring true lasting peace to our human race, a race that is so good at war? What will bring peace? And third, how do you know that you're a person of peace? How do you know that you will fit into that future world of peace? So why isn't there peace? What will bring peace? And how do you know that you're a person of peace? First, why isn't there peace? To get the imagery of this passage, you have to understand the connection in the ancient world between gods and mountains or hills. In that world, people believed that the higher that you went up in elevation, the more that you were up above ordinary common life, and simultaneously, the closer that you got to heaven. As you got closer to heaven, you'd be closer to the gods you were worshiping, and so they built, shri they built shrines to the various gods on different hills and mountains to be closer to them. Now with that context, listen again to verse two. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Now what's that a picture of? Isaiah is not here agreeing with the popular religious belief of his day. He's not saying, you know what, the, the pagan nations got it right. If you really want to worship, then in the future you're going to need to find the highest mountain to be really close to God. That is not what he's saying. Instead, what Isaiah is doing is what God commonly does when he's speaking to his people. God would often take something from the surrounding culture, a way of thinking, a way of speaking, something that everybody in that day and age would understand, in this case, that higher is better, and God would use that to speak his own words to his people. And so what he's saying is there's a day coming, these latter days, when it will be clear that God is exalted above all the other gods, that his mountain will be taller than everyone else's, and everyone's going to see that. And instead of moving toward the various gods on all of these other mountains, they're going to move to him and to him alone in order to learn from him. Now, that's what's coming. And yet that day is still off in the future. It wasn't there when Isaiah was writing. It's not here in our day as well. So what was true in Isaiah's day and in our day, it's that God's mountain, God himself, was lost in a sea of other mountains, other hills, other homes to other deities, that there's lots of competition in the ancient world, lots of competition in the present world for worship. And so there's these other homes to competing shrines to other deities, shrines to which the nations and the people now stream to worship other deities to whom they now come to learn, other deities who have their own worldviews, their own philosophies of life, their own ways of life. Now, in a parallel passage over in the book of Micah, another prophet, you'll see the connection between worship and philosophy of life a little bit more clearly, the connection between your way of life and what you worship. In Micah chapter 4, if you were to turn there, you discover almost word for word, this same section here in Isaiah, but Micah ends his differently. At the very end, Micah says, all the peoples walk in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And what Micah is saying there is that each God has a certain walk associated with it, a certain way of life certain way of understanding this world, a certain way of understanding how to live according to that understanding so that you'll have a good life. 
Each God has its own walk, God has his own walk, and the present reality is that right now, you and I live in a world that is full of lots of different things to worship, lots of competing gods, and lots of competing lifestyles that are associated with those gods. A world where there are lots of mountains and hills on which to worship. Now, a day is coming when it will be clear that God and his ways are not merely one option among many, but that day is not our day. We don't live in that day yet. Instead, today, there are multiple competing things that people worship, things that they think are the most important things to have or to value, things like intelligence. And so people will wrap their worlds around intelligence, around having it, around holding on to it, around expanding it. Or they'll wrap their world around attractiveness, on becoming attractive and staying attractive as long as they can possibly do that. They'll wrap their world around monetary wealth, education, entertainment, the list goes on, sex and romance, recognition and awards, positions and authority. There's a nearly endless list of things that people believe will give them the life that they want, the good life. Multiple options to worship. Multiple competing gods around whom you can build your life, each coming with its own attached way of thinking, its own worldview, its own philosophy, and a worldview that results in a certain kind of living. So how you think about life, the mentality that you have as you approach life, is connected to what you worship. The way that you think is connected to what you want in life and to what you value most highly. And there are many competing ideas in this world then of what is true, of what is accurate about this world, and about what will actually give you a good life. In other words, Isaiah chapter 2 tells you that relativism is nothing new. Relativism's been around for centuries, millennia. This idea that there is no one overarching truth over all of us, but instead there are lots of little truths out there. The idea that relativism is, is the way of life, that, that's nothing new. It's not new to say that truth is relative, that truth is simply a way of talking about what? Uh, about your perspective. A perspective that is informed by what you've experienced in life. It, 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 uh, a perspective of how you view life and make sense of the world. Perspective that's informed by what you want out of life. This idea of relativism is not new. The idea's been around for a long time. You see it here in Isaiah's day. There's many competing mountains but you can actually trace it even further back. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God there said to Adam and Eve, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the truth. Eat from this tree and you will die. The knowledge of good and evil in my world comes from what? It comes from trusting me and obeying me. That's how you can know what's true. Truth comes from worshiping and valuing me above every other thing that you could possibly want. And you worship and value me so much so you're willing to listen when I talk. Don't eat from that tree. Along comes the serpent. And the serpent says, you know what? That's not really true. You won't die from eating that fruit. In fact, abstaining from eating that fruit, that's not what's going to make you wise. Wisdom's going to come from eating it. The knowledge of good and evil comes from eating that fruit. It comes from making your own decision about what you're going to do. Now, what just happened there in that moment? Our ancestors were given two thoughts on reality, two different truths, if you want to say it that way. 
But these are not merely two perspectives on the same thing. They are ways of life that are in total opposition to each other. They have two very different outcomes. Both promise life, but only one can deliver on that promise because only one of them is true. Two different ways to live that grow out of two very different kinds of worship, either worshiping God or worshiping something else, trusting God in his word or trusting something else. History tells us that our first parents rejected God's thoughts in favor of their own, and in so doing, they embraced relativism as their approach to life. This idea that there are multiple truths that are all relatively equal, so go ahead and pick the one that you like. They embraced relativism, and they filled this earth with countless mountains and hills on which you and I can worship. Now, relativism as a philosophy is pretty easy to challenge. If someone were to say to you, all truth is relative, there is no truth, there's only truths, that what is true for you is not true for me, if someone says that to you, you can simply say to them, wait, is that, is that true? Is it true that there's no absolute truth? Is it absolutely true that there is no truth? You said there aren't any absolute truths, and yet what you just said, that sounds kind of universal. It sounds like that's what you're claiming is true kind of contradicts itself. And by the way, if it is absolute, how do you know that? How do you know that it's true, that there is no truth? Can you prove that? Why should I take your word for that? Brothers and sisters, listen to me. This is one of the ways that you know that what God says is right. Because if you try to approach this world any differently than he does, something breaks down somewhere just doesn't work. You start tying yourself up in knots so that what you say doesn't make sense anymore. You end up with contradictions like, here's the truth, there is no truth, and I'm absolutely certain of it. Relativism is easy to challenge philosophically, but it doesn't mean that people let go of it easily. Why is that? We just said it, because what you think is attached to what you worship. What you think grows out of what you worship, and so you'll hang on to whatever you believe, gives you what you want. And so you will say, there is no absolute truth, so you don't have to deal with God when he disagrees with you and he doesn't give you what you want. Yes, you end up being internally inconsistent. You, you're intellectually dishonest. But that won't matter to you as long as you get what you want. Holding on to a relativist position, however, does give you another problem, one that goes beyond internal inconsistency, and that is that it puts you at war with other people. See, if what I want is different from what you want, then how are we going to resolve the dilemma when, what our wants, when our wants are in conflict with each other? If there is an overarching truth that we're both obligated to, then one or both of us is going to have to change at some point so that we're in line with that truth. But if there is no truth to which you and I both answer to, say it differently, if there is no good or beauty to which we can both appeal or to which we can both aspire, but my God and your God teach us to live in ways that compete with each other, how are we going to settle our differences? The only way that we can do that then is through power, through physical force, electoral majority, public shaming, canceling of dissent, canceling of dissenters, bribing the opposition to going along with us, some kind of disinformation campaign, propaganda market spin, some use of force that compels one god to bow to the other. Multiple gods means that there will be multiple competing worldviews. 
which will produce a world that is constantly at war with itself. It can't be otherwise. That's why James begins chapter four of his book in the New Testament by asking this incredibly practical question. He asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's a question that we all wanna know. What, what, why, are, why are there fights and quarrels among us? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You work hard to get rid of other people. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Underneath of every fight that you've ever had, whether that's personally or whether it's societally, under every fight is the experience of your passions and your desires wanting something that someone else got in the way of. And so because you wanted those things so badly because you worshiped them, you're willing to go to war, to fight, to quarrel, to get them. If you stop worshiping the Lord, if you want something else to satisfy you more than you want him to satisfy you, if you worship something else, it's inevitable. You'll fight and quarrel with others. You'll be at war with them and they'll be at war with you. That's point one. That's why there isn't peace on this earth. Point two. Given that ugly reality, what is strong enough then to bring us peace? Now at this point, the answer is obvious, right? If your ideas and your thoughts are tied to what you worship, then nobody's going to be able to talk you out of idolatry. You need to change at a different level. You need to change your worship. You need to worship a different God. That's what Isaiah says will happen in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And so God will go from being one option among many to being seen and recognized as the only choice that there is. Now I suspect that that would have been surprising for an Israelite to hear because the place where God chose to have his temple, Mount Zion, the place where his people could meet with him, it was a relatively small hill wasn't even the highest hill in the area. The nearby neighbor, Mount, the Mount of Olives, was higher topographically than Zion. God did not choose a hill that was impressive, something that was attractive, something that would stand out from the crowd and visibly say how great he is. And you start to wonder, why not? Why did he choose this unimpressive place? Why not pick a place that would have declared his glory really loudly in a way that the surrounding nations would have understood? He didn't do that because it would have been way too tempting for you and me to come to him, not because we wanted him, but because we wanted to be part of something really impressive, something really cool, really big, powerful, respectable, trendy, something that we could go and brag to our friends, hey, I'm part of this. This is where I worship. These are the people I worship with. Aren't they amazing? Isn't this cool? Kind of want that, don't we? We want to be part of something that our peers think is respectable, something honorable, something that doesn't embarrass us. And yet that desire can be a trap because what? It's another one of those mountains out there. It's the mountain of I worship being respected and thought well of. And so I look for that when I worship God as well. I only want to worship him in ways that will be impressive to other people, in ways that won't embarrass me. It's a trap. It has nothing to do with God. And so God took that option off the table for his people. 
He chose this dinky little hill set in a tiny kingdom that's not especially righteous. And this is where he says he will be exalted in such a way that brings peace to the whole world. Nothing's going to be more influential or more important. And when he's exalted, it's not just going to impact Israel. It's going to impact all the nations. They're going to flow to him. Notice, they're not being coerced. They're not being forced to come to him. They're taking the initiative. In fact, they're actually encouraging each other to come along with. Verse 3, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. They're going to want to be with this God and they're going to want to learn from him because his ways are now going to be obviously best. They're going to notice that their former multiple walks, their ways of life, they weren't good. They weren't as good as God's. And so they're going to want to approach life no longer from the perspective of what they think is best. They want to know what he thinks is best. They're going to come to listen to the one whose words banish war, the one whose words make war unnecessary. Verse 4 again, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. He's going to judge and decide disputes in such a way that everyone says, there's no need to be at war anymore. What he just decided is exactly right. That's how it should be. There's nothing now that I lack, nothing that I feel like I have to find a way to get for myself. I now have everything that I need. I'm entirely, perfectly satisfied, so satisfied that there is no lingering animosity inside. I'm at peace with God and I'm at peace with everyone else. And everyone's going to feel that way. No one will walk away from his judgment muttering, buy and get mine. No one's going to feel like they're still owed something. No one's going to walk away secretly planning war in their hearts. No one's going to go home and build bombs in their basement. No one's going to go rabble-rouse and foment insurrection. It's not going to be any need. No one's going to feel cheated. All the nations come to him, and they come to him with their disputes. They bring with them the old arguments between them that they could never settle for themselves because there is not enough wisdom among the gods on all the mountains to settle those disputes. And our God settles them. Settles them in such a way that they are not restarted. Teaches them a new way to live. You realize worshiping this one God is not going to give you less than if you worship something else. That's a lie. You actually get more. And so the many different nations all come to him and then live in peace. You think that's amazing. It's almost too good to be true. You think, how on earth is that going to happen? But then you think, man, I haven't lived peace like that. How do I know that I'm going to actually fit into that? Well, Isaiah gives you a hint in verse 5 of how you can know whether or not you'll fit into that world. He says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So based on that future, Isaiah says, here's how we live now. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah calls the people of God to do now what the nations will say to each other later. Verse 3, again, 
the nations say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Why do they say that? That he may teach us his ways. Why do they want to know his ways? That we may walk in his paths. They are saying, come, let us walk in his paths. And so what the nations will say to each other in the future is what God's people say to each other now, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. How can you tell if you'll fit into that future world? It's because you're already in love now with the way that you're going to live later. You're living the future life in the present. And so you fit actually better into that world than the world all around you. Think, okay, well, that's cool. What does that mean? Four things here real quickly. First, it means that you've already got your worship right. You stream now to God and not to the alternative competing mountains. You're aware that in this world, it's easy to worship many things other than the one true God. And so you spend time thinking about what are the things that I'm easily drawn to that draw me away from this God, things that I could substitute for God to give me more joy and satisfaction in life, and you learn how to identify those things and turn your back on them. Because what you really want is this one true God. A person of peace worships God now above all other things. Second, a person of peace wants to learn God's ways. They recognize that since there is one God who made all that is, if you want to live well in his world, you have to know how he thinks about it. If this world was different, if it was the product of a blind evolutionary process, it would make sense then to say there is no one right way to see the world and to live in it because there's no point to this world. There's nothing meaningful about it, and if nothing is meaningful, then there is no right, there is no true, there is no wrong, there's no false. If it has no creator, it'd be arrogant to say there's only one right way. But if that's not the case, if the world has a creator, if there is meaning and purpose to living here, if there are right and wrong ways to treat each other, and you know that there are, you feel it inside of you, if the world has a creator, then it is truly arrogant to say, I don't have to listen. What I feel and what I like is just as valid as anything that he might say, so I'll think and I'll do whatever I want. That's what real arrogance is. It's not saying here's the one right, true God, and here's what he says. Real arrogance is to make up your own way of living, to make up your own path and then claim that it's as valid as any other simply because you said it was, simply because you want it to be true. That's the height of arrogance. Humility takes the opposite approach. Humility says, I didn't make all of this. That means I don't know how it works. That means I don't know how I work. I don't know how I'm supposed to work. How could I? So I need to listen to the one who put it all together. I'm not simply willing to listen. I want to listen. I want to hear what he has to say. A person of peace is comfortable saying, because there's one God, there is one truth. And I want to know what it is. Third, a person of peace focuses on nourishing activities, not destructive ones. Let me throw a little caveat in here, because this future world is not yet here. And that means that some of us still need to work in areas such as the military and areas of military technology. This passage is not speaking against doing that. It's not speaking against doing that with pride. But God does say that a day is coming when technology is going to make a shift when the things that people build and create in eternity are no longer going to be used to destroy others or to protect themselves, when building plows and, and pruning hooks 
will take over from building swords and spears. The only technologies that are going to exist in the future are nourishing technologies. Those that engage this world for life-sustaining, life-enriching purposes. And since that's what's true in the future, one of the paths that you and I will walk in then, it needs to be one of the paths that we walk in now. You want to think about how you spend your time. You want to think about that for your career. You want to think about that outside your career. And you want to ask, how does what I give myself to enrich life, sustain life, not just my own? How does it benefit the people around me? See, a person of peace doesn't ignore other people. That's not what peaceful living is all about. Peaceful living is not live and let live. A person of peace uses what God's given them to bless other people, to make other people's lives better. And fourth, a person of peace invites others to know this God by how they live now among the people of God. Isaiah's invitation, verse 5, to walk in the light of the Lord is in the context of talking to the other nations. It is for Israel's sake. It's a call to Israel, to the people of God. But it's also a way of showing everyone else what life's going to be like later under this king. Think about it this way. It's an apologetic for showing that this God is true, this one who later will be exalted. Now, there's different kinds of apologetics. You can learn philosophical apologetics. I would argue that you need to learn philosophical apologetics. And so you can learn to help people see the problem of believing in relativism, how it does not make sense in this world, how it leads inevitably to war. Or you can learn to help people see the foolishness of believing that this insanely complex world suddenly came together and all on its own produced order and beauty and meaning and purpose. You can learn how to help people see it has to have a creator. And if it has a creator, it has to have his ideas and his desires as its deepest foundation. That there is truth because there's a creator. You can learn those kinds of philosophical apologetic arguments. But there's another kind of apologetic called practical apologetics that comes from obeying this God and showing how his ways of life produce a better life than any other approach. And if you read through this scripture, you realize that was Israel's calling from all the way back to its inception. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, when God first gave his people his laws, his ways, he said to them through Moses, chapter 4, keep these statutes and rules and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Part of Israel's calling was to quietly live out day after day after day after day after day what God said in such a way that other people saw it and said, man, that's so much better than anything that I've gotten from what I've worshipped or from the ways that I've tried to live my life. So much better that I'm intrigued. I want to know more about this God. A person of peace lives out now what everyone will live later, in part to invite other people to join us in worshiping the, this God. This is what will bring peace. 
worship that has God at the center of your life, God at the center of the community, so that we willingly live out his way of life with each other. That's what will bring peace. And yet we still haven't answered how that's possible. This is what will bring peace, but you and I are much more familiar with war. We find it easy to worship something other than God, anything other than God. We struggle with learning his ways. We struggle with wanting to learn his ways. We struggle with wanting to live them out. This is what peace is all about, but how can we hope to enter into that future with our war-making backgrounds? Our hope is because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who brought us peace, did not end his life in peace. Isaiah says more about him in chapter 53. Speaking of this coming king, God says, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You know what this passage says? It says outwardly, Jesus didn't look like much. He wasn't impressive powerful, charismatic. He wasn't compelling when you saw him. He had no form or majesty, no beauty that we should desire him, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was not the tallest mountain. And yet he had this, an unwavering focus on God. His whole life was oriented around God and obeying God perfectly. He did that all his life. He did what God told Adam to do when God said to Adam, obey me and live. And having lived that life perfectly, Jesus then deserved what? He deserved peace with God. Only that's not the promise that God made to Jesus. That was the promise for Adam, not for Jesus. Instead, God said to Jesus, obey me. Live your entire life perfectly. Obey me and you will die. Obey me, and at the end of your life, I will be at war with you. That's what Isaiah promised in chapter 53. That this coming king would be smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. He would feel the weapons of war used against him, the technologies of war used to crush him struck on the head with a staff, nails pounded into his hands and feet, a spear thrust through his side. Why? For your transgressions and mine. For our iniquities. For the sins of his people that would keep them out of this coming future of peace. Jesus was warred upon for every time that you've put something at the center of your life other than the God who made you for every time that you've walked in some other path, for every time that you've fought and quarreled with others. But because God made war on Jesus, the only thing left for you 
is peace. Peace with God that lets you see him clearly among all the other gods on all the other mountains. Peace that makes you want to pursue him and his ways now and for eternity. Peace that causes you to want to live at peace with others and to long for that day when the world is at peace and peace that reaches out through you to invite others to know this Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come gifted at war. We know how to quarrel. We know how to fight. No one has to teach us that. We enter into this world knowing how to do that. We confess, Lord, that we have sought so many other things in this life other than you. And we've believed that our satisfaction would be found in those other things. And we have given into the foolish philosophies and promises of this broken world. Thank you, Jesus, for not turning your back on us, for not despising us, but for entering into that, not with war, but with peace. Thank you for standing in the way of war, in the way of God's wrath, for absorbing that. Thank you for opening the door to us so that we can live now the way that you have won for us to live forever. Lord, we bless you because of what you've done, and we are a grateful people.